0: Well, would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, and as you find that, join me in prayer for just a moment. Our Father, tonight as we begin looking at this uh, glorious text that uh, reminds us of your providence, of your goodness, of how you work uh, behind the scenes in ways that we can't always understand and fathom, I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged in our own lives that as you have uh, so graciously and greatly worked in the, in the life of Israel that so also you would work in our lives and you would help us to take these lessons, Lord, use them well and use them to trust you all the more. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, Exodus 1, and tonight we'll be looking at um, the first two chapters. This will probably be the shortest chunk of Exodus that we uh, do as we go for the next uh, 38 chapters. We'll go a little bit faster. In a recent article by the resident Bible teacher for the Friends of Israel uh, Gospel Ministries, a guy named Steve Herzig, a wonderful believer. He tells the story of a friend's daughter uh, who is participating in an event at Disney World, and this event called for uh, audience participation. And so as, as in the course of this audience participation, the MC randomly picked three young women in the audience to stand up, And the first question he asked them is, where are you from? And so this friend's daughter watched as the three young ladies looked at each other and they didn't want to answer. They were hesitant. And finally, with hesitancy, one of them said, we're from Israel. And so it was uncomfortable for them for some reason, and afterwards, the young lady went and met the three Israeli women and expressed her love and her support for Israel. And, and she said they were actually shocked that in America they didn't find that much and they certainly didn't find that elsewhere in the world. And they told her, we don't like to say where we're from, quote, because the world hates us. The world hates us. A study just several years ago by the Anti-Defamation League surveyed 53,000 people in 102 different countries And they had a category, and they didn't make up this category, it's just a category that exists, and so they had to ask. They had a category for those reporting, quote, a hatred for Jews. And here's what their study found. 93% of people in Gaza and the West Bank hate Jews. 92% of Iraqis hate Jews. In Yemen, it's 88%. Libya, 87%. And those numbers stay consistent in every Middle Eastern nation, despite the fact that 70%, 70 70% of the respondents had never met a Jew and knew nothing about Jews. That's our world today. So it's easy to see why so much violence continues to be directed at Israel. Since 2005, Hamas has fired more than 20,000 projectiles into Israel, not to mention suicide bombs, car bombs, bus bombs, weaponized cars, and other ways of rendering destruction. Almost every Muslim country has in their educational system organized, programmatic, anti-Semitic teaching from the smallest child on up. In the United States, 2018 saw the highest rate of crimes against Jews in our nation's history, including the murder of 11 Jews in their own synagogue in Pittsburgh last October. Now, in our understanding of the Scriptures... We would say that the Israel that exists today is certainly not the Israel, the, the Christ-worshipping Israel, which Scripture clearly teaches, will be restored in the future under the banner of Christ himself, and we understand that. But it is the continued faithfulness, the continued providence of God concerning his people that really is cause for us to pause and to, to, to be in awe of God's continued working in their, their people, It's remarkable. Uh, Today, as in all their history, Israel continues to fight for their right to even exist. They're considered by the world, even in official circles, in in the United Nations, uh, among those who are in embassies around the world, Israel is considered a second-class country. And most in the Middle East, if polled, would say they would prefer Israel not exist. This isn't just... A rivalry. This is a wish for the death of a nation. But this isn't new for them. They've suffered going back to the attempted annihilation of the Jews by the Persians in the 4th century B.C. This was the time during Esther. There was the attempted destruction of the Jews as a people by Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century B.C. They were victims of the Crusades, of the Inquisition, and of course the Holocaust. And Those are just the major periods of persecution. That doesn't count what happens normally throughout history And yet, they're the only nation in history ever to be completely disbanded twice and then be reconstituted again, not just as an ethnic group, but as a geographic nation. They're the only nation in history to get all their land back two times. That's phenomenal. And so they continue to exist as a people, this is one of the reasons, by the way, that I'm really wary of any theology that says that God is done with Israel. Historically, that has never seemed to be the case. They continue to exist. Their life as a nation has been painful, it's been difficult, and in fact, their very birth as a nation has been painful and difficult. And so, as we begin our journey through Exodus, the theme of which is Israel, we're going to start there with the birth pangs of Israel. And we're going to see immediately that Israel really stands as the greatest living, living lesson on the hidden providence of God. The fact that God works in ways that we can't see, we can't understand, because we don't have the full picture. We don't even have a partial percentage point of the picture. And so in examining the birth pangs of Israel, I want to focus our attention this evening on the providence of God. And I'd like to put it in somewhat personal terms and use this text to teach us. So what I want to look at is what you can expect in the providence of God. What you can expect in the providence of God. And this is going to build what seems at first a, a kind of a gloomy picture. But that is the nature of providence, isn't it? That the providence of God isn't that he gives you the happy ending at the beginning. The happy ending comes later. So let's just build what you can expect in the providence of God. First, you can expect endless waiting, Endless waiting. Let's begin in Exodus chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, it would be appropriate to just continue Exodus from the end of Genesis, because the first word in Hebrew in Exodus is and. So it would be appropriate to say, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. And so it just continues this story. It reminds the reader of who originally came to Egypt some 400 years earlier. In verses 2 through 4, the sons of Jacob are listed, but they're not listed in chronological order. They're not listed from oldest to youngest. Very interestingly, they're, they're listed by their mothers. You have, first of all, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Then you have the the second son of Rachel, Benjamin. Joseph isn't listed because the end of verse 4 indicates he's already in Egypt. He's not part of the family migration. He's already been there. Then you have the sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, and her sons were Dan and Naphtali. And then you have the sons of Leah's servant, uh, Zilpah, that's Gad and Asher. Now, why is that significant? Well, this follows the same order as the list of Jacob's sons all the way back in Genesis 35. This list in Exodus 1 picks up on this because the the list in Genesis 35 is in the same chapter. It's just a few verses away from the, the point in Genesis 35 that God gives this blessing to Jacob. God said to him, I am God Almighty, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So, the list that organizes the boys according to their mothers is the list that says great population is coming. It is the be fruitful and multiply list. Verse 5 says that there were 70 family members that came to Egypt. And we have to take a small detour here, because there's a minor textual challenge for us. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and the Dead Sea Scrolls version of Exodus list 75 in the family. And since the Septuagint was the, virgin, the, the version that Stephen would have known, he said that there were 75 in Acts chapter seven. Now what's the difference? In Genesis 46, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, has five additional names in the families of Manasseh and Ephraim. So what's happening here? Is our Bible trustworthy? Absolutely. Here in Exodus, it could be said that Moses, the author, did what has been done elsewhere in Scripture with numbers. You either round it up or round it down to express completion. For example... 2 Kings 19, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are killed by the angel of the Lord. There's only a one in a thousand chance that that's actually 185,000. It's just a big number, and there's a reason for it. But when the Holy Spirit decides it's necessary to be precise, he's very precise. Exodus 38 and Numbers 1 list the number of fighting men in Israel at 603,550. And so when God wants to be precise, he's very precise. Even in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sent 72 to go minister, there's a good manuscript, good manuscript evidence for 72 or 70. So which is it? Well, either one can be correct, because if, if the author is going for precision, it's 72. If he's going for completeness, it's 70. So it seems that the intent of Moses here is to complete, give a, a complete number, that everyone that was supposed to go went In either case, 70 or 75, that's not even enough people to plant a church with, much less a nation. And so we're starting really small. Do you remember in Genesis what the big challenge for the major mothers were? The the, the challenge was infertility. Sarah couldn't have a child. Rebecca couldn't have a child. Rachel couldn't have a child. For God's chosen nation, they didn't seem to do too well getting off the ground. But all of a sudden in Exodus, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now becomes a baby-making machine. And they just start cranking out kids. Verse 7 says, they increased greatly. You know where else we see the same Hebrew word? Genesis 1.20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. The, the Hebrews were swarming over the land. I mean, it must, have been, it must have been a wonderful time to live. You get married and, and uh, you, you knock on your, your parents' door the next day after the wedding. And you say, guess what? We're having a baby. Wow. And so's your brother and so's your sister. And, and they're just coming so quickly that all of a sudden now, when in Genesis you see with great difficulty and with great trust in the Lord, a, a woman was so thankful to just have the one child. But now they're just multiplying. And all through the Bible, this dynamic of the providence of God seems to be very consistent. That the, that trusting in the wise workings of the Lord includes endless waiting. They waited and waited and waited. Psalms speaks of waiting on the Lord two dozen times. Not just waiting for a year or two, waiting beyond our lifetimes. God encouraged Israel in Psalm 37, 34 wait for the lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land you will look on the wicked when they are cut off in every circumstance we're exhorted in psalm 27:14 wait for the lord be strong let your heart take courage wait for the lord we've said this often here from this pulpit that one of the hallmarks of a of a maturing and a wise christian is the ability to wait the ability to see God working in a slow fashion and that sometimes that waiting seems endless and in fact that waiting might go beyond the boundaries of your own lifetime. That you might be waiting beyond your mortal life for the things that you hoped for and the things that you've been praying for. So endless waiting. They waited and waited and waited and here they are now just waiting for the Lord to do something. What else can you expect from the providence of God? You can expect unjust oppression. Unjust oppression. Look with me at verse 8. We'll read through verse 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land So now you have a new king. Who is this new king? Well, the best evidence points to the fact that this was not an Egyptian, that this was an, uh, an Asiatic people known as the Hyksos, the Hyksas, some would say, who took over control of Egypt in the 18th century B.C., just shortly after the time of Joseph. The most likely date that they came is 1776 B.C., And this would have been just a number of decades after Jacob's family moved to Egypt, enough time for them to begin multiplying at a rapid rate. And this fits really very well with the the massive and overwhelming evidence toward an early exodus in the 15th century B.C., rather than the once popular uh, later exodus of the 13th century B.C., which has been basically all but disproven now. So what does this mean? It means if we're going to be fair with the text and with history, we need to consider the likelihood that the actual slavery of the Israelites wasn't for the full 400 years. That's just a, a fact here. The fear of the Israelites didn't take place until they were numerous enough to be a potential threat. They were large enough to carry on a war if they were organized. But the biblical assertion of 400 years of bondage is just a general term, sort of like uh, the term three days and three nights in the Bible. Most often actually means three days and two nights. That's just, it's just an idiom. While all the 400 years maybe were not in total slavery, slavery was definitely the dominating experience. And it's almost certain that their slavery was the end result of a natural progression. They weren't just this this free state roaming around the, the country and all of a sudden put into slavery. Almost certainly, and there's a lot of evidence from Egyptian law about this, almost certainly they were under increasingly oppressive government policies, sort of like Christianity in America today. That you had this increasing oppression over time, like the proverbial frog being boiled in water, which heats slowly. But we take God at His word. In Genesis 15, God told Abram that his descendants would be afflicted 400 years. And one thing is certain: for the entire 400 years, Israel was considered a stench to Egypt. Even in Joseph's day, an Egyptian wouldn't sit down to have lunch with an Israelite. They considered them disgusting. Well, in verse nine, this new Pharaoh says that there's too many of them. There's too many. In fact, this is a Hebrew phrase that elsewhere in the Old Testament, it means there's more of them than of us, that we're actually outnumbered. Three leading scholars estimate the population of Egypt during this time on the low end at 2 million and on the higher end at 4.5 million. That's that's the Egyptians. So considering that Israel eventually left Egypt with 603,550 fighting men, If you include their families, then basically Israel's population had either matched or overtaken Egypt's. Now, is that possible? Well, it's been very well established that this is not only possible, but the estimates of two to three million Israelites are considered by many scholars to be extremely conservative. And there are a number of of well-spoken scholars and researchers who go into the more five to six million range of those that left Egypt at the time of the Exodus. So they're becoming numerous. Now, Moses, writing an inspired text here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, having written Genesis and Exodus, he weaves in, at the Holy Spirit's direction, some themes that remind us of another story. Did you notice any similarities to the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11? Both stories, the Tower of Babel, and here this story of of Pharaoh putting the Israelites to work, both refer to mortar and bricks. Both want to do something to avoid God's will. Genesis 11, verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, which was God's will. Exodus 1, verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, which was God's will. And on both occasions, God will frustrate the plans of the rebellious. There is no Tower of Babel, and Egypt didn't destroy Israel. And so in the providence of God, the powerful seemed to be going against God's will, and yet God brought it back to his will. So Pharaoh takes action that he thinks will solve the problem. Israel is now reduced to complete slave status, but all he did was throw lighter fluid on the fire Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And as one preacher said, they didn't have anything else to do, so they just made more Israelites. By the way, this reminds me a lot of the beginning of the church in Acts, that the more they were persecuted, the more the gospel just spread like wildfire around the world. That's how God grows his people. And so now you have this unjust oppression. You have generation after generation being enslaved and and I know you can imagine how this this must have felt felt so wrong, so unjust, especially since they had the very recent memory of their own family member, Joseph. He was the prime minister of Egypt, he was literally the second in command of the entire empire of Egypt. He had given Jacob's family the good land of Goshen, and they lived peacefully just growing their very quickly uh, enlarging families. They didn't do anything to deserve this oppression. They, they weren't troublemakers. They weren't trying to take over Egypt. Have you ever asked God that question in all honesty? What did I do to deserve this? This feels unjust or why me? The psalmist asked in Psalm 44 verse 24, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression but questions like, why me? And why are you forgetting me? These are the wrong questions. Here's the right question. Understanding the big picture of the providence of God, the right question is, Lord, how can I walk through this time of oppression with a greater increasing trust in your sovereign plan? That's the right question. How can I walk through this in a way that's pleasing to you? The book of Psalms gives us great encouragement and, and big picture reminders of God's provision, even when something unjust happens is happening psalm 9 verse 9 the lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble i made the mistake of watching a small portion of one of the democratic debates the other night and it was sad to me to see them competing to see who could be the most pro-abortion to see who could kill more babies than the other one and you just want to, you just want to jump through your TV and say, "Stop it!" But some someday the Lord will. But again, God coming to your rescue might not be in this life. If you hear the theology preach that all the loose ends of your life will be tied up before you die, that's false theology. That's wrong. Some of them might be, and God is gracious. But not all of them will be. Where, where in the Bible does it say that God is obligated to rotate his entire plan around your little tiny lifespan? He's not obligated. Solomon's Psalm 72 tells us. Psalm 72, 12 and 13, Solomon writes, For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. That's true. He has pity on the weak and the needy and he saves the lives of the needy. That's true. And that sounds like God will rescue soon. And very often he does. But Solomon continues from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. What does that mean? That means he rescued them after they died. Yes, he will rescue his own from oppression. And the ultimate rescue will be in eternity. And certainly we should pray and expect that God does mighty and marvelous things in this, this life. But in all likelihood, he won't tie up all the loose ends in your life during your lifetime in the span of your life and so we trust him what else can you expect from the providence of god we'll call this one peculiar help peculiar help beginning in verse 15 then the king of egypt said to the hebrew midwives one of whom was named shiphrah and the other puah when you serve as midwife to the hebrew women and see them on the birth stool if it is a son you shall kill him And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now I guess the first question we ought to ask is, were there really only two midwives to help birth all the Israelite babies? Some feel that these are just the supervising midwives, and verse 19 seems to indicate that before the midwife comes to them. They're not saying before we come to them. Others think it's just the two of them and they're just as ridiculously overworked as the slaves of of Israel. In in either case, they're the instruments of God to save the lives of the babies, save the lives of the boys. Now, this is a little puzzling. Why Pharaoh would order the deaths of the baby boys? This is like setting fire to your bank account. The the slaves were property. It seems self-defeating that in just one generation there would be no male slaves left. Some scholars feel that Pharaoh intended to reduce Israel to baby girls only so as to take them for his own use and that of his people. In fact, in verse 22, when it says Pharaoh commanded his people, all his people, he's not meaning all of the population of Egypt, he means his officials, his administrators, those under his command. It seems that he may be giving a reward that if you will throw all the baby Hebrew boys in the Nile, you can keep the girls and there's a reward there. A terrible reward. So we don't know the reason from Scripture. But I think if we look a little bit more broadly, and we look at at a key parallel event, I think that answers the reason. The reason is, is that this was a diabolical, supernatural scheme by Satan under the providence of God to never allow a Savior to come. What's the parallel event? Well, here, in this case, Moses is coming right he's the savior and by killing all the baby boys moses would not come and in the parallel event the murder of all the baby boys in bethlehem in the surrounding area to murder the king of the jews jesus christ but of course the savior of israel moses would come and the savior of the world jesus christ would come because god was working providentially hey these midwives are something else They're pretty courageous. They won't give in to Pharaoh what belongs to God according to God's promise to Abraham to multiply a people like sand of the sea and like the stars. And by the way, if they had obeyed Pharaoh, they wouldn't have been breaking the law. As the sovereign ruler over Egypt, he could do with his slaves as he pleased. But their fear of God led them to ignore Pharaoh's command because Pharaoh's edict was a wicked law. They wouldn't have been punished by Pharaoh, but they feared god now there is the question of the ethics of the midwives many have debated the fact that they told a lie to save lives but did they lie was it a complete fabrication or just a really well-placed exaggeration Now, it certainly could be that they simply really took their time every time a birth was on the way but here's a little interesting tidbit they said that the Hebrew women are vigorous. This is the traditional translation, but that translation is based solely on the decision in the Masoretic text of the 9th and 10th century, 9th and 10th century AD, the Masoretic text of the, of the Old Testament, those scholars made a decision to pronounce the three-letter Hebrew word a certain way, and that would render it vigorous. That would make it the only occurrence of this word in the entire Old Testament. But there's a much more common word in the Old Testament. By simply pronouncing the same three letters differently, the word doesn't mean vigorous, it means animals. And now the midwives are playing the part of seeming to denigrate and insult the Hebrew women as part of their subterfuge. They're saying, oh, these Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptians. They reproduce like animals, and they give birth before we can even get to them. And so it seems they have this feigned disgust toward the Hebrew women, which Pharaoh buys. Well, whatever it is that they're doing, the women are to be commended. Two reasons. First of all, there is, first of all, no sense in which they're doing this for self-serving reasons. Because, in fact, they're taking their life into their own hands by deceiving Pharaoh. They could have been executed on the spot. And the second reason there to be commended, very simply, verses 20 and 21, says that God rewarded them for their actions. And so we commend them as well. But how peculiar. The help of God coming in this odd way through two women who stretched the truth to the breaking point with the most powerful man on earth, fooling them with a careful turn of phrase. I imagine these two ladies walking. Okay, what are you going to say? And what are you going to say? And let's get our story straight. And under the... Under the, the care of God, they got it straight. Listen, the longer you walk with the Lord, you should just expect this. You should just almost expect that God's mercies and His kindness will providentially come from peculiar and unexpected places. Why does God do this? Why doesn't He just help us the way we wish He would? Why doesn't He do what we expect? Why doesn't He do what's normal? you see 10 other Christians and God works in a certain way and you say, that sounds good, and then he does something completely different with you. I think the simple reason is that God continually asserts his own sovereignty and his own wisdom. And this is the classic declaration of God in Isaiah 55, verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so when God's help comes to you in ways that you you least expected it, what well, does this do? Well, it engenders awe and gratitude and thankfulness. and Almost a sense of wonder of just smiling and shaking your head and saying, I never saw that one coming. Never would have thought of that in a million years. God's creative, mysterious plan. I wonder how many of the Hebrew mothers, as they were nursing their very recently born baby boy, saw coming down the street, one of the midwives coming up and walking in the door and saying, oh, I guess I am too late to take away this baby. I guess I didn't get here in time again. Peculiar help. Those Hebrew women, they're just too vigorous. They're just animals. And God helped. What else can you expect from the providence of God? We'll call this one unexpected twists. Unexpected twists. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his, his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now the parents of the child aren't named. Later in Exodus 6, we find out that this is Amram and Jacobed. Jochebed means the Lord is glorious. Her parents were true believers in the God of their fathers and had named her accordingly. And Both Amram and Jochebed are listed in the Hebrews 11 hall of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. But both, though both parents are credited, verses two and three seems to put the emphasis on Mom, on Jochebed. She did the hiding. It's very likely the Amram was away at one of the cities, the storehouse cities that Pharaoh was using the, the, the workforce to build. In verses two and three, Jochebed is the subject of nine verbs in Hebrew. She is doing something, doing something, doing something, doing something, doing something, doing something, nine times about this edict she made a basket of bulrushes the older translations rightly translate this an ark this is the only other place that this word appears in the bible except for genesis 6 1 through 9 26 times obviously referring to noah's ark now from a a literary standpoint this ties those two stories together both noah and moses were set apart by God to play a major role in God's redemptive plan for his people. Both were saved from drowning by being placed in an ark of God. And interestingly, 1 Peter 3 uses the imagery of the ark of God to illustrate salvation given through Christ. So this is is important imagery for us. And so the child's sister, we know her later as Miriam, she puts the little ark in the waters of the Nile, and then she stood back to watch. Now, why would she do this? This wasn't just a random spot. She wasn't just launching the baby out and hoping that it landed somewhere. She put the baby in a spot where he wasn't going anywhere. This was the spot that the Hebrews would have known that the Egyptian women of the court used to go wade and to go bathe. And so God is working in a mysterious way now through the daughter of Pharaoh, and there's some interesting parallels here which show us the, the hidden nature of the providence of God working through people that he chooses to use. Let me just give you a couple of them. Verse 5, it says, She came down to bathe at the river. Chapter 3, verse 8, God said, I have come down to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 5, She saw the basket. Chapter 3, verse 7, The Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt. Verse 6, she heard the baby crying. Chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord says, I have heard their cry. Verse 9, the cry of the people have come, has come to me. In other words, the daughter of Pharaoh is working in microcosm on God's behalf. She doesn't know it. She doesn't have a clue that she's being, being used by the God of the universe. But it is, it is a picture of his plan to redeem and to rescue And so the Lord is working through this woman of influence. Verse 6 says that she took pity. I think the English translation doesn't do the intensity of that word really enough justice. Because you can pity someone and yet do nothing, right? But that's not what this word is. This word means to have compassion to the point of making you act. Of making you do something. The Lord placed a burden on her heart that she was going to rescue this little one. Now, Miriam comes up to offer her help. Miriam never identifies herself as, as the baby's sister, but I don't think that the daughter of Pharaoh is so naive that she didn't figure out pretty quickly that this little Hebrew girl just happened to show up and just happened to immediately know of a Hebrew woman who just happened to be physically ready to nurse at that very moment. And just because she's Pharaoh's daughter doesn't mean she agrees with the policies of her father. And so she's a woman with the compassion of a mother. And so little Moses is sent back to his mother, interestingly, who gets paid to take care of him. Little bonus there. But sadly at the age of 2 or 3, Jochebed must hand her son over to the daughter of Pharaoh. In later centuries, the story of Hannah handing Samuel over to the priest Levi will remind us of this time and in, in both instances the child would pray, play a major role in the protection and salvation of Israel and Of course, the most important time a mother had to give up her son was when Mary had to watch her son Jesus die on a cross, willingly giving his life. And now, for the first time in all the Bible, we see the name Moses. This is the first of 772 mentions in the Old Testament, 80 mentions in the New Testament. He's mentioned in the Bible, fifth most of anyone And considering that two of the top four are God and Jesus, Moses is doing pretty well. He's only beat out by Jacob and David. That's it. Moses, it's the Hebrew word Moshe, which was given to him by Pharaoh's daughter, which means drawing him out of the water. But most scholars believe she gave him an Egyptian name. There are numerous names of Pharaohs that begin with the name of an Egyptian god and end with the verb that either means to be born or to have a son, Mos. So you have Ahmos, You have Thutmos or Ramesses, Ramesses, same root word. So in other words, Thutmos would be born of or the son of the god Thut. And so either Moses had a longer name in which the Egyptian deity was left out or he's given what was a very common Israelite or uh, Egyptian name at that time rather, Mos or Moses. I think the best explanation, though, is that his name has a double etymology, a double origin, that he's both Hebrew and Egyptian. He's all of both. And Moses would eventually have to choose. He would have to decide which God he would serve, the false gods of Egypt or the living God of the Hebrews. And when he did choose, it was a clear choice. He didn't try to live both lives. Hebrews 11, verse 24 says, By faith... Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused. But this woman was used by the Lord to save him. By the way, the princess Hatshepsut is the best candidate for the one who drew Moses out of the Nile. There isn't really a good second choice. Hatshepsut actually ruled Egypt for a time herself. After her death, though, something very interesting happened. Somebody tried to obliterate the history of her existence. Inscriptions about her were defaced. Sculptures of her were broken. Silhouettes of her images were carefully carved out of stone images so that new ones could be put in their place. Some of her statues, and she had sphinxes also, they were removed, they were, they were smashed, they were put into trash dumps. And the best candidate for the person responsible... For this defacing of all things having to do with Hatshepsut is a Pharaoh named Amenhotep II, otherwise known as the Pharaoh of the Exodus, who was defeated by God by Moses, who was raised in the courts of Hatshepsut. One scholar wrote, After the Red Sea incident, Amenhotep II would have returned to Egypt, seething with anger, both at the loss of his firstborn son and virtually his entire army, and he would have just cause to erase her memory from Egypt. Why was he doing that? Because in Egyptian mythology, to erase somebody's memory was to erase their spirit from the afterlife. He was trying to destroy her existence because she raised the man who defeated him. What an unexpected twist in God's providential plan to rescue his people. A baby boy placed in a little ark in a long shot hope to be raised in the courts of Pharaoh. Again, the providence of God includes the unexpected, the unanticipated, the the surprising. And I don't know about you, but to me, this is what makes the Christian life so interesting. Because God never does things the way you think he ought to. It's always a surprise. If you're you're worried that being a Christian is going to be full of surprises, don't worry. It will be. You don't have to worry about that. If you were able to read the script of your life, if you were to be able to take every page and, and turn it, every page would have a new surprise. You would turn some pages and go, wow. You would turn other pages and go, oh, no. And so he doesn't allow us to do that. We can only live the page of this day so that all glory goes to God and God alone. What else can you expect from the providence of God? To encourage your heart, how about deflating failures? Deflating failures. Verse 11 of chapter 2 One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Verse 11 says, when Moses had grown up, in Hebrew literally, when he became great, it can refer to simply growing up, or it can refer to coming into great power and importance, and in this case, it's both. Verse 12, Moses makes a terrible and a misguided attempt to play the role of Savior to his people. He sees this conflict happening, this Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and it says he looked this way and that. It doesn't mean that he's necessarily checking to see if anybody was looking. More likely, he was trying to see if there was an official authority that was going to stop this abuse. Now, the text doesn't tell us if Moses intended to kill the Egyptian or if his defense of the Hebrew man just got out of hand and Moses delivered an accidental fatal blow, it doesn't matter. In either case, he's now guilty of murder in the eyes of Egypt. And son of the daughter of Pharaoh or not, a Hebrew still killed an Egyptian. And that had to be dealt with. So when he tries once again the next day to help his people, in this case, two men who were fighting, one of the men rejects Moses and says sarcastically, are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian How did anyone know? There was no one else around. There were no witnesses. There's only one person who could have spread the word, the Hebrew man that Moses had defended. It's likely that out of fear of retribution, this man has spread the word that Moses killed an Egyptian. That's gratitude for you, right? So Moses flees to a remote wilderness area. Not a bad move considering he just incurred the wrath of the most powerful man on earth. Now, interestingly, Stephen's account of this incident in his speech to the rulers of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 7, we get additional inspired detail that we don't have in Exodus 2. We learn, first of all, that Moses was 40 years old when this incident happened. He was well-educated, well-established. Everybody knew who he was. And we also know that Moses, by then, already knew that he was called to rescue God's people. That was his calling. He knew it. Acts 7.25, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So his problem wasn't having the right mission. His problem was he just had the wrong methods, the wrong timing. He went about trying to effect this salvation in his own power, in his own way. We also learned that in Moses' attempt to make peace between the two fighting Hebrew men, They so disrespected him that the wrongdoer actually physically assaulted Moses. Acts 7.27, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside. It's a word that means pushed him down, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And so Moses, his initial efforts are, they're misguided. They're wrong. But in God's providence, Moses already had a yearning in his soul for the mission that God would give him for 40 more years. His ministry to his people starts horribly. He, he doesn't know what he's doing, and he actually alienates both the Jews and the Egyptians. Now he has no place to go. The Egyptians are going after him, and the Jews hate him. Moses had four decades to think about this deflating failure. I don't know about you, but I wince when I think back to my most deflating failures. And yet, God in his kindness is providentially able to use those deflating failures exactly for his own purposes and and in your life and in mine, perhaps to get you right where he wanted you in the first place. Moses had to flee the only home he had ever known, Egypt. But it would be in the wilderness as a humble shepherd, quite a step down from the courts of Egypt, isn't it? In the wilderness is a humble shepherd where he would grow, where he would begin his family. Eventually, it would be from this time of exile that God would call Moses. Instead of calling Moses when he's in the courts of Egypt, he would call him when he's on the the plains of Midian. In your deflating failures, the first thing we have to remember, first of all, is that by the blood of Christ, all your sins are washed away. And that's comforting to us, but... Remember, secondly, that your deflating failures are sometimes the greatest tools that God providentially uses to work in your life. It has not been just one time that an adult has told a child, this is the most important mistake you'll ever make because they teach us. And so we can expect deflating failures in the providence of God. And so the next time you fail, you can smile and say, God must really be working through me at this moment. Well, let me give you one more thing you might expect from the providence of God. To complete your encouragement, how about hopeless dead ends? Hopeless dead ends. Chapter 2, verse 16. Moses has sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So you have the, the priest of Midian here. Elsewhere, he's called a Kenite. This is a, a people that were, they were metal workers. But in Midian, there were lots of different people. So he could be a Midianite and a Kenite at the same time. And in rescuing Reuel's daughters, Moses again reveals his heart. His heart is to save the downcast, to save those who are being oppressed. That's, what, that's how God made him. Retuel is known elsewhere in Scripture by his Alabama name, Jethro, as well. (laughs) And look how Moses is described. This This is sad. How is he described by the daughters in verse 19? An Egyptian delivered us. That's sad. Moses appears as an Egyptian because of his appearance and because of his language. Egyptian, the Egyptian language in that time, in that area would be like english is today it's understood by most people it would have been the common language and so moses is well rewarded he's given food he's given a place to live he's given a living to make he's given a wife and then has a son but god will use the next 40 years in what seems like a, a hopeless dead end why to take all the egyptian out of moses He will really become the ultimate Hebrew. He will become the man that today a Jew would say, I would most want to be like Moses. Now, lest we be discouraged by what we find in the providence of God, endless waiting, unjust oppression, peculiar help, unexpected twists, deflating failures, and hopeless dead ends, now we get a very rare behind-the-scenes look at what's happening in the providence of God. Like the curtains are pulled back and we see in heaven the inner workings of what's happening in the places we can't see. Verses 23 and 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And you notice all of a sudden the flurry of mentions of God, 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 God. He's been there all the time. God didn't remember his covenant in the sense of coming to his senses. It's not like God said, oh yeah, I think I remember something about this. But it's the idea that now is the time to act according to the plan he's always had. And now we have, I think, what is one of the most profound encouragements concerning the seeming silence and the seeming inactivity of God when he works providentially. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Oh, that's powerful. The, the knowing of God. What does this mean? It means action is coming. This is a behind-the-scenes look at heaven. That while heaven seems silent, if the curtain is drawn back, in fact, the angels of God are gearing up. God is drawing his arm back to, to strike the enemies of his people. And while on earth, God seems quiet. In heaven, there's a flood of activity and anticipation of intervention and action. Listen, we've already gotten one little clue about who's really running things. You remember the two midwives? You do, because they're named Shiphrah and Puah. You remember them. You remember Pharaoh? No? Why not? Moses doesn't even name him. God's running things, not the world. These were the people of divine promise, the, the chosen people of God who were given the task, Exodus 19, to make God known in the world. And yet they couldn't have seen any of that. For them, earth was roaring for their lives while heaven was completely silent. This is exactly what Paul taught in Acts 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, listening, listen, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is how the apostle Peter addressed the believers to whom he was writing. He calls them in 1 Peter 1, exiles, and in chapter 2, sojourners or travelers. Uh, The older translations say aliens and foreigners. That we don't belong here. That, that it's with tribulation, it's with trial that we enter the kingdom. And so we have to look at the big picture. These were dark and ominous days for Israel. But by stepping back to see God working out His plan, in His way, in His timing, in His means, with His wisdom, by, by stepping back to see that, we see that the glory of, and God knew. Now, obviously, we have an advantage over Israel, right? Our advantage is we just keep turning the pages because in the script of their life, we have it. It's in our hands. We can see the big picture. In fact, we can see the big picture as Christians better than Israel can right now because their eyes have been darkened. We can see Zechariah 12 in which Israel will call upon the name of Christ. We can see Revelation 12, in which God will rescue the remnant nation of Israel. We can see Revelation 22 and New Jerusalem giving its light to the whole world. We can see Jeremiah 31.7. And before I tell you what that says, remember what I said at the beginning, that today, 93% of people in the West Bank and Gaza hate Jews. In Iraq, it's 92%, 88% in Yemen 87% in Libya, everyone hates the Jews. They're the denigrated country. They're the country that shouldn't ever exist. You know what? In the future, God will call Israel, in Jeremiah 31, 7, the chief among all the nations. That someday Israel will be the capital nation of the world. And we've taught elsewhere that then all the nations will come to, to Jerusalem flocking to the capital nation. And in our lives, we only see the page in our script of today. We're not permitted to turn the page. We can't see tomorrow. In fact, Jesus said, don't look. He said, why would you worry about tomorrow? Today has enough trouble of its own. We aren't permitted to look at those next pages, but they're there. The script of your life has been written. And yes, there's some darkness on a lot of the pages, but the last page is light, and the last page is hope. Why is that? Well, because when you cast your lot with Christ, when you said, I will follow Christ all the way, when you placed your faith and your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you know what happens? What happens is that everything that happens to him happens to you. That you have been crucified with Christ, you have been raised with Christ, you have been seated with Christ, and you will be glorified with Christ. And so you've cast your lot with him. Everything that happens to him happens to you. So when you're on a page that's dark, when you're on a page that's gloomy, keep turning the pages because the last chapter is amazing. It is amazing. Amen? Our Father, thank you for this text which encourages our hearts to believe you. And Even looking now at these precious ones here, I, I know for some of them they're on a dark page. I know for some of them they're in the midst of hopeless dead ends they're in the midst of grave difficulties and endless waiting but lord just like israel the plan that you've constructed for our lives although in this life it may not be fully realized because you don't obligate yourself to do so but in eternity it will be fully realized and the prayers that we prayed, those things we begged you for will all come to fruition And so, Lord, I pray for those who are on the dark pages right now that they would be encouraged that the next page, the next day, might bring light, might bring joy. But very clearly, the last page most definitely will. Lord, I pray for the encouragement of all who are on the light pages as well, that they might bolster themselves because the next page might be dark and there might be difficulties coming. There might be, oh, no, moments And so we pray, Lord, to learn to see the big picture, to trust you, to have that overwhelming confidence in your providence, which we would define as joy. To be confident in the providence of God, Lord, give us that joy, give us that peace, give us that that great encouragement, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.